You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so excited and so grateful uh, to have the opportunity to open up God's Word with y'all this morning. Uh, but I know what some of y'all are thinking, like, oh man, Brandon is preaching this morning. Like, we got we got the kids loaded up. You know, we got them all dressed. We almost got a speeding ticket on the way here. All for Brandon. You know, like, I get it. I don't like Brandon. Listen, y'all, that's okay. I don't like Brandon either. All right. We've got something in common already. Uh, Brandon is a mess. I'm a sinner like everyone else in this room. But for whatever reason, uh, God has chosen me to preach his word this particular morning. And my prayer, just so y'all know, has been that God is the one who does the speaking this morning and not me. Because he is the only one who can offer you life change uh, this morning. I am fully aware that I cannot do that. And I just wanted to make that clear uh, right up front. But I am really excited to be here. I'm especially excited because this morning I get to start off a brand new series that we're going to be in for a little while called The Sermon on the Mount. Um, And in this series, we're going to be reading through and learning from a sermon that Jesus himself preached. We're going to be preaching sermons about a sermon. And this sermon that Jesus preached is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason it's called the Sermon on the Mount is because it's a sermon that Jesus preached, get this, on a mount, okay? Uh, And here's another another fun fact. Uh, This sermon is one of the first sermons that Jesus ever preached, uh, that we know of at least. Uh, He preached this sermon really early on in his ministry when he was around 30-ish years old, so right around my age actually. And so this is one of his very first sermons, uh, that at least that we know of. And you may be thinking, oh man, one of his his first sermons is probably not that good because, you know, let's be honest, most preachers' first few sermons are just just horrible. You know, like I thought about my first sermon, for example, and luckily it wasn't here. It was at a church before this, but... uh, I was preaching on idolatry, you know, having idols in your life. And I wanted to start the sermon by being transparent and letting people know, hey, I struggle with this too. And so I was like, listen, y'all, I struggle with idolatry. I commit idolatry all the time. And and, in fact, you know, I catch myself committing idolatry every day, it seems like. Uh, And I thought I nailed it. And I thought it was a home run. and And I end the sermon and I come down from the platform and a guy stops me and he says, Brandon, I know you were preaching on idolatry, but for some reason you kept using the word adultery. And so this newly married young man is up here preaching, I commit adultery every day, you know? I I have to confess from adultery pretty much all the time, you know? So uh, it was bad. Um, For some reason they never asked me to preach there again. I know my sermons aren't that good now, but I went through a really rough patch in the beginning like every preacher does. But I tell you all of that to make this point. Uh, Jesus did not go through that phase. Uh, Jesus' sermons, even his first sermons, were amazing. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is considered the greatest sermon ever preached. And here's why. Because Jesus isn't just a preacher. Despite what other religions will try to tell you, Jesus was not just a preacher. Jesus was God in human flesh. And I just felt like I needed to to start this series off by reminding us of the importance of these words that we're going to be studying in this series. Uh, Y'all, we are reading the words of God. And I know that all scripture is is God-breathed, but when Jesus speaks, it's God speaking to us humans as a human himself right? It's so special. When Jesus preaches, it's God preaching to us. It's the creator of the universe preaching. The Bible says that all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. Those are whose words we're going to be reading in this series. So pretty big deal. 
And so with that in mind, let's get into the sermon preached by God himself, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 12. And it starts like this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. So crowds were following Jesus. He's doing all these miracles. He's becoming pretty famous. The people are thinking, man, is this Jesus guy really the Messiah we've been hearing about and reading about our whole life? And so crowds are forming around Jesus, and Jesus uh, sees the crowds. He sits down. His disciples come to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be covering this morning is referred to as the Beatitudes. Uh, if you've been in church for a while, you probably heard that word before, the Beatitudes. You may see that word in your Bible. Above the actual passage of Scripture itself, it may say the Beatitudes. But that word Beatitudes is not actually in the Bible. Don't let it confuse you. Uh, it's just a word that we use to describe something in the Bible, kind of like the word Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we use it to describe something the Bible clearly teaches. Uh, we get the word Beatitudes uh, from a Latin word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce for y'all this morning, but it pretty much means blessed or blessing. So we use the word beatitudes to describe Matthew 5, 2 through 12, because in these verses, Jesus is telling us different ways that we can be blessed. So that's what the beatitudes are, ways that we can be blessed. And if you're still confused, all you really need to know about the word beatitudes is these are attitudes that you need to be having, right? And if you be having these attitudes, you're going to be blessed. So Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount by telling us ways to be blessed. You know how he does that? By the way, he does that because he loves us, because he's for our joy, because he wants to bless us. So Jesus is going to tell us a few different attitudes that we should have. He's going to tell us how those attitudes are going to bless us because he loves us, because he's for our joy, because he wants to bless us. And what's the first thing he says to do? We just read it in verse 3, but I'll pull it up again. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you want to be blessed? Well, then you got to be poor. And Jesus is not talking about being poor like, you know, ramen noodles for dinner every night, poor. He's not talking about being financially poor. He's talking about being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But what does that mean? The, the best way that I know how to put it is to be poor in spirit means to recognize, accept, and admit that you are broken, that you are a spiritual mess, that you desperately need a perfect, sinless Savior to make you right with a loving but also holy and just God, because you're a sinner and your sin separates you from that loving but holy and just God. Um, I watch a show called The Office. I don't know if you guys watch this show. You got to have a certain kind of sense of humor to like it, but it's a show basically about this group of people who work in an office space together, and they're led by their manager named Michael. And Michael's he's he's pretty dumb. He's not the brightest crown on the box. He does dumb things all the time, says dumb things all the time. That's kind of his character. And there's one episode where Michael's having financial problems, going into debt, and he goes and talks to somebody in the office, and he's like, "Hey, man, what what, what do you think I need to do?" And he's like, "Michael." have you thought about declaring bankruptcy? And Michael's like, what is that? He's like, if you declare bankruptcy, it might help you with your debt. And so Michael's like, oh, okay. And so he leaves that guy, walks out into the, to the main room where everybody is in the office, and he says, <clears throat> I declare bankruptcy. And the guy comes up to him, and he's like, Michael, you know you just can't say I declare bankruptcy. I don't care if y'all think that's funny. It's hilarious. So to be poor in spirit... I know you'd appreciate that, Pastor Josh. To be poor in spirit means to declare spiritual bankruptcy. I declare spiritual bankruptcy. I declare that I am broken. I declare that I am a sinner. 
And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? What is the blessing? How does this attitude bless us? Here's how. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the blessing that the poor in spirit will receive, the kingdom of heaven. And I believe when Jesus says kingdom of heaven, he's ultimately referring to salvation here. So I believe Jesus is saying, you have to declare spiritual bankruptcy in order to be truly saved. Being poor in spirit, declaring spiritual bankruptcy, having that attitude is not just a character trait of a Christian. I believe it's a requirement to become a real Christian. The Bible says God opposes the proud, y'all. God opposes the people who think they are good, who think they have it all together. In fact, those are the bad guys in the New Testament, the people who thought they were perfect. Those were the people who had Jesus murdered. So we have to uh, recognize, accept, and admit that we are broken and full of sin, and we cannot get it right. Our way doesn't work. We can't get ourselves into heaven. We can't save ourselves. We are not good enough. We need Jesus, we need a perfect, sinless Savior to be our mediator between us and a holy and just God. And that's exactly who Jesus is. And this is one of the main themes of the entire Bible, by the way. Like I work with the students here at Revolution, and I encourage the students to try to read their whole Bible. But I tell them to do it in a really specific way. I tell them, hey, start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Get to know Jesus, and then go read the rest of the New Testament, um, Acts through Revelation, which points back to Jesus and teaches you more about Jesus. And then go read the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. And I encourage them to read the Bible this way because I don't know about y'all, but but I've started reading my Bible before, like from Genesis, and Genesis is great. You know, all these great stories and it's easy to read. And then Exodus is great. It gets a little hard to understand at the end there, but then you hit Leviticus, you know, and you're like, what? You know, but if you read the gospels first and you you got to know Jesus, and then you read the new Testament and learn more about them, and then you go back and read the Old Testament. If you do it that way, then books like Leviticus make so much more sense because you realize, wow, Jesus did all of this perfectly like, whoa, he really is perfect. That makes you appreciate the perfection of your Savior, Jesus. And also, you realize, dang, could I do all this? Could I keep all this? Could I ever be perfect? No, I'm a mess. When I look at the standard of perfection, I quickly realize I am spiritually bankrupt. So I need the perfect Jesus to become a perfect sacrifice for my sins. And the Viticus books of the law, I believe are supposed to show us that, show us how spiritually bankrupt we are. They help us realize and accept and admit that we are poor in spirit. And my point is that is the foundational message of the entire Bible. We can't do it. We are lost. We are broken. We need Jesus. He has fulfilled the law for us. He is perfection for us. We don't have to live a perfect life. We put our faith in Jesus. He has lived that perfect life for us. So blessed are the ones who got it all together. No. Blessed are the perfect? No. Blessed are the uh, rule keepers? No. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And how are they blessed? Oh, just with the kingdom of heaven. Y'all, if you come to Jesus as a beggar, you'll become an heir to his kingdom. That's a pretty good deal. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Talk about a blessing. That's the first attitude that we need to be having in order to be blessed. Here's the second attitude Jesus gives us, the second way to be blessed. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Want to be blessed? Got to mourn. And that sounds 
a little backwards to us. And by the way, when Jesus was saying this to his original audience, it sounded a little backwards to them too, okay? This, is, this was a shock to them too, like it is today. Blessed are those who mourn. Like, what? We've got to figure out what Jesus meant by this. And there's really only two things that Jesus could have meant uh, by this. And Bible scholars, people who know their Bible really well, have kind of gone back and forth on which of these two meanings Jesus was actually trying to you know, get across here. So first of all, Jesus could have been saying this. Jesus could have been saying, blessed are those who mourn, in general. Blessed are those who mourn in general, who, who go through hard times, who experience loss and suffering in life. Blessed are those who mourn in general. And if this is what Jesus meant, then this is great news for the Tennessee volunteer football fans in this room right now, because y'all know all about mourning. And so y'all must be super blessed, you know? But seriously... Jesus could have been talking about mourning in general. Uh, blessed are those who mourn in general. And this makes sense when you think about what Jesus said next, right? Blessed are those who mourn. And how are they going to be blessed? For, because they will be comforted. Because uh, if you are mourning and you have a relationship with God, then you will experience the comfort of God. God comforts his children when they mourn. And listen, even if this isn't exactly what Jesus meant here, it's still biblically true, and I think it's worth talking about for a couple seconds. So we just finished the series in James, and what did James say to do when you, when you mourn, when you go through trials, when you go through suffering? James 1, 2 through 3 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for what? For great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. James said, count it all joy when that stuff happens. Why? Because it creates perseverance. Because it uh, makes you stronger. Because it brings you closer to your creator, closer to the God of the universe. God will give you his comfort and bring you closer to him in those times of mourning. I have learned that we get closer to God in the valleys than we do on the mountaintops. At least that's how it works for me. So mourning can be a good thing because you can get closer to God in those times if you make the choice to use those times to get closer to God and talk about a blessing. You know, someone who doesn't uh, know God uh, can't say that. To them, mourning is just mourning, you know? Or think about Job in the Bible. If you read your Bible, you probably come across the story of, of Job. Job was a, a rich man in the Bible who loved God, but the devil took everything from him. The devil took every one from him, except for his wife, by the way. Like, think about that for a second. The devil's trying his best to torture Job, and he leaves his wife alone. I don't know what that says about his wife. But the devil took everything, and almost everyone uh, from this guy, Job. And, and what happens at the end of Job's story? God blessed Job pretty much with a double portion of what he lost. And he went through mourning, but because, because he went through mourning, he was eventually able to experience the comfort of the God of the universe. And talk about a blessing. You can't experience the comfort of God if you never need it, y'all. So trials can be a good thing. God loves to use mourning for good. Blessed are those who mourn in general. Maybe that's what Jesus meant. But the second thing Jesus could have meant by this, and this is kind of where I lean here, uh, is blessed are those who mourn, not in general, but over something specific. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. And this makes sense when you think about what Jesus said right before this. Uh, right before this, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones who recognize they are sinners. So it makes sense that Jesus would be saying here, blessed are those who mourn over the thing I just said. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. Also, think about this. When did Jesus mourn? We really just see Jesus mourn three times, at least three times that I thought of, right? Jesus mourned when his friend Lazarus died, right? Even though he was about to bring Lazarus back to life, he wept, he mourned. Why? Because death 
is a result of sin. Sin brought death into the world. And Jesus was, as Jesus was standing at the entrance of the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, Jesus was probably thinking about when he first made human beings and how they were supposed to live forever. But human beings started doing the opposite of what God said to do, sinning. And that sin brought death into the world. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus mourned. Jesus also mourned once when he was looking out over Jerusalem. And he was mourning because the people were too blinded by their sin to see him for who he was, the Messiah. Jesus mourned in the garden before he was crucified, uh, sweat and drops of blood. I think that counts as mourning. And why was he doing that? Because he was about to literally take on the full weight of our sin. He was literally about to take that punishment that we all deserve for our sin onto his own back. So it makes sense that Jesus would mean blessed are those who mourn over sin because that seems to be all that Jesus ever mourned over. And maybe you're like, well, how does mourning over sin bless me? Well, first of all, it blesses you because sin is a poison, y'all. Like, if you haven't figured this out yet, sin, doing what God says not to do, uh, does nothing but lie and deceive and mislead and trap and destroy and steal from you and ruin your life. And so when you mourn sin, when you take your sin seriously, you're more likely to repent from your sin. You're more likely to take steps to avoid sinning. And therefore, you are more likely to avoid bringing that poison into your life. And Jesus doesn't mean that you live in the past and that you live in guilt for your sin, by the way. When you put your faith in Jesus, your sin is paid for in full. That's past, present, and future sins included. But it does mean that you mourn sin, that you take sin seriously. It does mean that you hate your sin. It does mean that the effects of sin break your heart. If you're not mourning your sin, if your sin doesn't bother you, if you're not convicted by your sin, I mean, we're all still going to sin. I sin, y'all. But, but if we're not convicted by our sin, if it doesn't tear us up, if we're, not, if we're not mourning it, then I'm not sure, just to put it bluntly, I'm not sure that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. I'm not sure that we would be saved, to be honest, because real Christians mourn over sin, take it seriously. And one day when we get to heaven, God will comfort us. I think that's ultimately what Jesus is saying in this beatitude. He's ultimately referring to heaven when he's talking about the comfort of God that those who are mourning will receive. Jesus will one day wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain forever. Why? Because sin is gone. The poison has been removed for good. And that sounds like a blessing to me. Blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. Here's a third attitude that Jesus said we need to be having to be blessed. Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, first of all, uh, I think it's important that we understand that meek does not mean weak. Jesus is not saying that we got to be little, you know, passive weaklings if we're going to be followers of Jesus. We're going to be Christians. Meek does not mean weak. Jesus was the most powerful, strongest human being to ever walk the face of the earth, but he was also the meekest human being that ever walked the face of the earth at the same time. So meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness, by definition, is strength, power, authority under control under control. And a great way to explain meekness is, is parenting. So I have three kids. I have a six-year-old son. I have an eight-month-old daughter. And I have another daughter who is right in the middle of what is referred to as the terrible twos. And I don't know if I've ever agreed more with the term in my life. Like when my kids were one, People come to me and say, oh, man, just wait, Brandon, the terrible twos are coming. And I'm thinking, well, it ain't like it's the wonderful ones right now. You know, I haven't slept in like a year. Like, how could it be worse? Boy, was I naive. Uh, Y'all, something happens 
when they hit two years old. Like, like whoa, you know? Like, listen, I am, I am 99% sure that my daughter is not possessed. But when she's having a meltdown over a Pop-Tart, I quote scripture to her just in case, you know, just to see if she flinches, you know, just to be safe. And listen, I'm a grown man, you know, and I could, I could, I have the strength, the power to hurl her across the room like a football when she talks to me like, like what now, punk? You know, I have the strength to do that. But obviously I'm not going to do that because I love her. I don't want to harm her. And she's just a two-year-old. You know, she's been alive two years. So I control that strength that I have. Um, That's a dumb example for meekness, strength under control though. But Jesus modeled this on the cross. So this is a good example, right? Like Jesus is on the cross. He's being murdered on the cross spat on, made fun of, beaten half to death, right? And at any moment, we know this, at any moment, Jesus could have called down a multitude of angels to wipe out all the people who were doing that to him, bring him down off the cross, heal his body, but he didn't. And you know why he didn't? For us. Like, here's another way to explain meekness. Meekness is not thinking less of ourselves. Meekness is thinking of ourselves less. I'm sure Jesus wanted to use his power to bring down angels from heaven, but he didn't for our sake. He was there on on purpose. Meekness is not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Uh, So I'm going to control myself. I'm going to give of myself for the benefit of other people. I'm not a pushover, and when it comes to the truth, I'm going to be bold, but I'm going to be humble enough to to, to bite my tongue when I want to blow up on somebody or or, or say something that I shouldn't to somebody. I'm going to be humble enough to control myself. I'm going to be humble enough to think of others above myself, and that's so backwards to us. Because in our world, it's all about using whatever power we have to get ourselves ahead. It has nothing to do with others. Right? Like I was at Walmart the other day, and there was a guy uh, looking at TV mounts. And uh, he, he had a question about one of the TV mounts. And so he got this Walmart employee, and he called her over. And she was this older lady. And he asked her this random question about this TV mount that there's no way anyone could have known the answer to. And when she didn't know the answer... The guy just lost his marbles. He just went crazy, screaming, being so rude and mean to this elderly woman because she didn't know the answer to a question about a TV mount. That guy was using every ounce of the little bit of power he had in life as a Walmart customer to get himself ahead. That's the opposite of meekness. Meekness is about using or not using whatever power you have to get others ahead. That's meekness, Uh, and that's a character trait of every Christian, or at least it should be. And do we model this perfectly? Absolutely not. I know I don't, but we try. And the blessing that Jesus promises to those who are meek is the promise of a future earth that we will inherit. If you don't know, Jesus is one day going to make a new earth. We're not going to spend eternity as little ghosts floating in the clouds, y'all. We're going to spend eternity in a very real physical earth. Jesus is going to make a new earth, but it's going to be perfect. And Jesus says, the meek are going to inherit this new earth. And this reminds me of something else Jesus said once. Jesus said, on the new earth, the first on this earth will be last. And the last on this earth will be first. So there's going to be an extreme reversal. The humble, the meek on the earth now will be the first on the new earth, y'all. But those who only look out for number one, those who only care about getting their way, those who only care about getting themselves ahead and, and speaking their mind and, and using their rights and never thinking about others and, and who never control their strength for the benefit of others or use their strength for the benefit of others, those people will be last for eternity. Blessed are the meek, though, for they will inherit the earth. It's a pretty cool blessing. 
Here's attitude number four we need to be having. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, this one really resonates with me because I hate not to be filled after I eat a meal. Uh, like, it makes me mad, especially if it's at a restaurant, especially if it's at an expensive restaurant. Like, I remember one of the first dates I went on with my wife, I took her to the Cheesecake Factory. That's about as fancy as it gets for me, is the Cheesecake Factory. And uh, we sat down. I'd never been there before, so I asked the waiter, hey, man, what would you recommend? And he said, well, do you like steak? And I said, duh, I like steak. And so he went back in the back and, and uh, got me the steak, and he brought out a steak that was about the size of one of those hams in a Lunchable, you know? And uh, literally, I put my fork in it, I was done. And it was also one of the most expensive steaks I've ever bought in my life. And I was furious, just to be honest. Michaela, my wife, the whole time she's thinking, just focus on me, this is our day. I'm like, I can't, I'm burning with rage right now. So anyway, when I read the words hunger and filled here, that resonates with me. I'm like, okay, what does this mean? So Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Okay, I'm good so far. I get hungry a lot. I get that. But wait, hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness, for they will be filled. If you hunger and thirst, seek after the right things, y'all, you will be filled and you will be satisfied. But here's the flip side. If you hunger and thirst and seek after the wrong things, you'll never be filled. You'll never be satisfied. It's cheesecake factory steak, y'all. For example... If you hunger for sin, you'll never be filled. Uh, we've noticed this, right? I'm going to trip on this cord if I don't get it out of my way. <laughs> Sorry, that would be embarrassing. But if you hunger and thirst for sin, you're never going to be filled. You're never going to be uh, satisfied. Uh, sin is like spiritual Chinese food. You know, you're just hungry for it again 30 minutes later. Uh, you know, think about pornography, right? Makes you happy for a, a few minutes. Makes you feel like junk after. But then 30 minutes later, if you want to be happy again, you got to watch it again. You know, I think about gossiping. You know, you're talking trash about somebody behind their back, and, and once you get done talking trash about one person, you're like, you're scratching your head like, who can I talk gossip about now because i got to scratch that itch. And it's just not satisfying, you know? You get, getting drunk with the girls on the weekend or the boys on the weekend, you just got to do it every weekend in order to keep that happiness going. It never, never satisfies. Another example, if you hunger and thirst for material things, you're never going to be filled. Like, we know this, right? We know it. Uh, the, the, the new bigger house always gets smaller, and it always gets older, especially compared to that house that pops up on that Facebook post that says for sale, right? The new car always gets old. The features always become outdated. Like, I, for some reason, I have always wanted a, a truck with a backup camera. I don't know. I just really want a truck with a backup camera. I think they're so cool. But I know that if I can ever afford a truck with a backup camera, there'll be another feature that I'm like, forget the backup camera. I want that, you know? Like I just saw a commercial the other day with a truck that had a cooler on the tailgate, like built into the tailgate. And I'm thinking, who cares about the backup camera? I want that. And so you see, it's just never satisfying. Spiritual Chinese food, you're just hungry again 30 minutes later. You're never really filled. You're never really satisfied. Jesus is saying, the only thing that will ever satisfy you is righteousness. And what is righteousness? Really simply, this was my definition. Righteousness is, is God's will. It's, it's basically just God's will, what God wants. And so if you hunger for God's will to be done, you will always be satisfied. You know why? Because if it's God's will, it will always happen. If you're like, I, I just want what God wants for me, then you'll always be satisfied because nothing can stop the will of God. It's the only guaranteed thing in this universe we live in. You'll always get what you want if you always want what God wants. But how do we do that? 
How do we hunger for, for God's will? How do we hunger for righteousness? Here's how. We got to curve our appetites. We got to curve our appetites. We got to acquire a taste for righteousness because it doesn't come naturally. So, like, uh, have you ever noticed that if you stop eating McDonald's for a couple months, you'll stop craving McDoubles? You know, you'll lose your taste for McChickens. All of a sudden, the thought of it will become gross to you. And have you ever noticed how if you drink and start drinking more water instead of Coke? You know, or start eating more vegetables, you start to prefer water. You start to prefer vegetables. The same is true here. It's really simple. We just got to curve our appetite. You just got to try to start consuming more righteousness, consuming more things that you know God is behind, that you know God is for, and you just got to start consuming less sin. You got to start consuming more righteousness, things you know God is for, and less material things. Very simple. And eventually you'll acquire a taste for righteousness. And you'll curve your appetite. And sin will start tasting bad. And material things will start losing their flavor too. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. You will be satisfied. And you'll be filled because righteousness is God's will. And God always gets his way. Y'all, life gets a lot more filling and life gets a lot more satisfying and life gets a lot more peaceful when you curve your appetite to God's appetite and when you curve your will to God's will. And also when Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, I think again, Jesus is ultimately talking about heaven. He's talking about eternity because one day we'll be completely satisfied. One day there will be no battle between our appetite for sin and earthly things and our appetite for righteousness. In heaven, we will only want righteousness because we'll, we'll see, we'll be in the presence of God. And in heaven, there will only be righteousness. So one day we'll be completely filled, Christians, completely, eternally satisfied. And I think that's ultimately what Jesus is trying to teach us here. All right, let's move on to attitude number five. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So, so what is mercy? And let me answer that question first, because I think there's a lot of confusion between uh, grace and mercy. Grace is, is getting something that you do not deserve, right? But mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. So showing mercy, being merciful, is not giving someone what they deserve. I had a guy uh, call me in the church one time, and he said, man, I, I, I've got some people that have done me really wrong. They've essentially stolen a lot of money from me, and I need to know, should I sue them? Should I press charges? Uh, you know, should I try my best to get my, my money back from them? And, and, and I'm like, dude, listen, you have every single right to do whatever you need to do to try to get your money back. And if you sue them, there's, it's not sinning. But I also said, Man, I've read Jesus' words a lot, and I'm pretty sure he would say, just show mercy. Just don't give them what they deserve. Jesus says, show mercy. And what's the blessing that we get if we show mercy? Jesus says, they will be shown mercy. The merciful will be shown mercy. And that reminds me of something else Jesus once said. I think we have it up on the screen, Matthew 7. Jesus said, do not judge others, or you'll be judged uh, for you will be treated as you treat others. Whew. Really think about that. That's pretty scary. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. If you're going to be harsh in your judgment of others, God will be harsh in his judgment of you. But if you show mercy, God will show mercy to you. Let's go back to James again. I've been pulling from him a lot. James 2, 13 through 17, uh, if you remember from the series uh, that we were just in, James said, there will be no mercy. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, 
God will be merciful when he judges you. Man, y'all, this is so countercultural again, right? Like, like think about even just the movies that we like to watch. Like we like to watch movies where we see people get each other back. You know, like think about John Wick. You ever seen John Wick? Raise your hand. Wow. <laughs> Pray for those guys, y'all. That's crazy. Admitting that in church. Just kidding. I've seen it too. And, and here's, the, here's essentially the premise of John Wick. His, this guy's puppy gets killed and he commits genocide. And we're like, yeah, this is awesome, right? And this even in our kids' movies, right? Like y'all remember watching, I don't know if y'all were a kid when Lion King came out, but I was. And I remember watching Lion King as a kid. And, and, and the, what happens to the bad guy in Lion King? What happens to Scar at the end? He gets ripped to shreds by hyenas. And we're his kids sitting there going, it's what he deserves, you know? Like, it's, it's just something in us. And, but what we have to understand is, y'all, again, so countercultural, so counter to our sin nature. But what we have to understand is we are no better than the villains. We're no better than anyone. We're not. And we all deserve the same punishment for our sin against the holy and just and all-powerful God. Like, I know that I'm not better than anyone else. And I know that pretty much any sin that you can think of, I am guilty of in my heart in some way, shape, or form. And if I want to be shown the max amount of mercy, I better be merciful to others. The more merciful you are to those who do you wrong, the more mercy you receive from God for the things that you've done wrong against him. I think, again, that's ultimately what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is ultimately talking about heaven. He's ultimately talking about being shown uh, mercy on judgment day. Pastor Josh talked about that a couple sermons ago back in our James series. Go back and watch that if you want to learn more about what judgment day is and what that means. But essentially, you're going to stand before God one day, and I just, I, I'd better be safe than sorry. Just be merciful. You know, just live a life of mercy. Here's attitude six. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The word purity is used and abused in the church. And for some of you, when I say that word purity, it puts a really bad taste in your mouth. But purity is not about what you do or what you don't do. Purity is all about why you do what you do or why you don't do what you don't do. Purity in, in heart is about where your heart's at. What's in your heart? What's your motivation for the things you do? Who do you love? What do you love? What do you really desire? That's what purity is all about. It's not, it's not about what you do or don't do. Jesus called the Pharisees, the people who uh, thought they were good, who thought they were perfect, the religious leaders of the day, he called them whitewashed tombs. So they had all the actions. They were pretty, they were whitewashed on the outside. They did all the good things. But in their heart, their motivation behind those actions was sin. Their motivation behind those actions was pride and greed and getting themselves ahead. And so Jesus is saying, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You got all the right actions on the outside, but inside you're dead. They, they did the actions, but they weren't pure in heart. Actions are important, don't get me wrong. And doing the right things come from a pure heart, but Jesus doesn't care about your actions without a pure heart. When you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus makes you right with God. He puts his Holy Spirit in you. Jesus purifies your heart, and when he does, your desires are supposed to change. Your motivations are supposed to change. You're supposed to become a new creation, and your actions are supposed to change as a result of that. So if you come to church, but you only come to church because it makes your wife happy, because it makes your mama happy, that ain't making God happy, okay? If you give, if you tithe, but you only give out of compulsion, that ain't making Jesus happy. That's not a pure heart. If you only read your Bible just so you can win an argument with the family member at the next Thanksgiving dinner, that's not a pure heart. You know, I'm a pastor. If I only read the Bible for sermon prep, that's not a pure heart. 
Those actions don't matter to Jesus if the right heart is not behind those actions. Jesus wants your heart. He wants you to have the right motivations in everything that you do. And do you know what the motivation behind everything someone with a pure heart that Jesus is talking about does? What's their motivation? It's a love for God. It's a love for God. A pure heart is a heart that loves God, that loves him more than anyone or anything else. A pure heart is a heart that seeks to please God more than anyone or anything else. And this makes total sense when you think about the, what Jesus said the blessing is for the pure of heart. What's the blessing for the pure in heart? Jesus says, they will see God. They will see God. Imagine what it will be like, y'all, to see the one true creator of the universe, God. And, and he will know your name and he will love you and he will take you into his home. Like, imagine that. That's the blessing. And if, and if that doesn't excite you more than anything else, y'all, I'm just going to be blunt. You may not be following Jesus like you think you are because real Christians love God and the promise to see him, the, the object of our love one day should be sound like the biggest blessing ever. That's like pure in heart. Here, here's a pure in heart test for us. If Jesus would have said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see a million dollars in their bank account. If Jesus would have said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see a brand new car in their driveway. If Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see Taylor Swift. You know, if Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see thousands of followers on Instagram and, and thousands of like, likes on their post. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see a miracle happen in their lifetime. If Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife. If any of those things make you more excited than what Jesus actually said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, we may need to reevaluate our faith. If you don't understand why seeing God is a blessing, then you don't have the kind of pure heart that Jesus was talking about. You don't really know Jesus. You need to reevaluate your, your faith. And, I, and I'm sorry, there's really not a nice or comforting way to end that one. That one's tough. That one's supposed to chew on. That one's challenging. But let's keep reading. I got to hurry. Uh, Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. So, y'all, we live in the divided states of America right now. Like, listen to this. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Republican Democrat, right, left, Fairfielders, Crossvillians, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Feel the tension here, y'all. Fighting words. And it seems like that's all we do right now. We're just fighting each other. Families torn apart. We're just fighting each other. But even now, even here, even in this climate that we're living in, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called, commanded to be a peacemaker. Our goal needs to be peace. Does that mean that we compromise the truth to make peace? Of course not. But we're called to do all we can do on our end to live in peace with all people. But what does that, what does that look like, Brandon? To be honest, I don't really know. It's kind of a case-by-case -case thing, you know? I just think we're supposed to look for opportunities to make peace, right? And this is tough for a lot of us because for a lot of us, if we're honest, we're just looking for opportunities to create more division, you know? Like, oh, this, this Ben Shapiro post is good. Let me share this on Facebook and maybe they'll see it and that person will see it and that'll show them, right? Or we'll passive aggressively share a Bible verse even, you know? Oh, that'll show this person when they see it. We're not called to do that. We're called to, called to make opportunities for peace, 
more division and more arguments. Jesus isn't, isn't saying uh, to sin to make peace. He's not saying not to call out sin for the sake of peace, but he is saying to look for more opportunities to make peace and less opportunities to create more division and tension. And Jesus says the blessing for peacemakers is they'll be called the children of God. So if we're peacemakers, we'll be, we will look like our Father God. Kind of like as you grow physically, you look more like your biological parents. Like for me, that's a real bummer. I did not win the genetic lottery with my dad, okay? Maybe some of y'all can relate to me. But luckily, the, the more we can look like our Heavenly Father, the more peace we make. God is a peacemaker. Our Father God is a peacemaker. Y'all, we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. And what does God do? Instead of smiting us, he comes to this earth as a man lays down his own life for our sin against him to make us right with him, to create peace with him. So God is a peacemaker, and we're called to be his children, and we will look more like him if we are peacemakers because the more peace we make, the more we look like our Father God. Last one, Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's a reason Jesus saved this last one for last. There's a progression here in the Beatitudes that's important to notice, I think. Um, If you are poor in spirit, right? If you recognize your need for Jesus, then you will mourn. You will mourn over your sin. You will take sin seriously. And that will make you weak, meek. Uh, because It will humble you because you'll realize how serious your sin is. And if you are meek, then if you control your strength for the benefit of others, you'll be walking in righteousness. And you'll hunger and thirst for more righteousness. And from that righteousness, you'll become a merciful person because you just want what God wants. And God wants mercy. He shows us mercy, right? And the more you become like God in your mercy, the more you will love him. And and that's what being pure of heart is really about, loving God. And and, and if you're pure in heart and you care more about loving and pleasing God than anyone else, then you'll be a peacemaker because God is a peacemaker. And you'll go against the grain of this divided world and culture. Uh, You'll be a peacemaker, but you'll go against the grain of this world that that you live in. And guess what? When you go against the grain of the world that you live in, there's going to be friction. and, and, And they'll hate you for it. Because the world wants you to conform to its patterns. And everything Jesus has said to us this morning is the exact opposite of the world's patterns. So there's going to be tension. We will experience some form of persecution. That's the warning. All of this will lead to being persecuted on this earth. But wait, I thought we were talking about you know, being, being blessed. We are. Jesus just said, if you're persecuted, you'll be blessed. So even if you lose, you win, right? Persecution for Jesus leads to more blessings. Now, persecution is, is a touchy word, and, and let's be honest, most of us don't know anything about major persecution, right? Like we weren't whispering our worship songs in a cave this morning because we're in fear of our families being arrested, right? Like we weren't, we're not here opening, owning a word of, owning the Bible and holding it in our hands and learning from the Bible with the risk of having our heads cut off. So we don't really know what major persecution looks like, but we do experience minor persecution here. Um, like at your job, the temptation is to blend in with your coworkers, right? To, to talk like them, to act like them, to joke like them, to gossip like they do, etc. And if you don't, 
you might be made fun of, you might be spoken about behind your back, you might feel like the black sheep, you know, you might be excluded from things. I can't really relate to that too much. I mean, Pastor Josh doesn't make fun of me when I read my Bible, you know what I mean? But I know that some of you guys might experience that in your workplaces. So maybe you experience that from coworkers or from family members or from friends or whatever. You know, as a church, we experienced, you know, the, the Facebook persecution as a church when we bought the movie theater because y'all know we went in there with a gun to somebody's head and said, y'all better give us this movie theater. That, that's not how it happened, by the way. But when stuff like that happens, you got to be like, bring it on. Bring it on. You know why? Because Jesus just said, the more they persecute me, the more blessing I will receive. Jesus said, great will be your reward in heaven. And what, is that? what does that mean, Brandon? What does a reward in heaven look like? I don't know. I don't know. But I know it sounds awesome. I know it sounds really cool. Listen, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus will be saved, but not everyone is going to have the same reward in heaven. But the more persecution you face in this life equals the more reward you will receive in the next life. So, so bring it on is what Jesus is saying. So those are the Beatitudes. And, and, and what's the sum of everything? I know I've gone a minute over. I'm going to be quick. But the sum of everything, I think the main goal with this first part of the Sermon on the Mount is just to change our perspective, y'all. If, if, we, if we've changed our perspective from an earthly perspective to a heavenly perspective a little bit, I think I've done my job. Like, think about it. Each one of the blessings has something to do with eternity, focusing on heaven more than earth, focusing on eternity more than the 70 to 90 years at best if we're lucky right? Focusing more on building God's kingdom than building our own kingdom and prioritizing heaven over earth. And by doing that, you're bringing heaven down to earth. I, I think there's an earthly application to each of these beatitudes, but I think overall the beatitudes are supposed to shift our minds from earth onto heaven. And if you do that, you will be blessed. That is the key to being blessed. I think that's Jesus's main goal with the first part of the sermon. And I know that was a lot. Okay, trust me, I said it all. I know it was a lot. I'm out of breath. But that's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This, remember, this is a sermon preached by God himself. So, of course, it's going to be a lot. And this is just the beginning. I can't wait for the rest of it. But for now, let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for blessing us, for loving us so much. Um, you know, if all you ever did was send your son Jesus to die for us, to become a perfect sacrifice for our sins, to get us out of the punishment we deserve, and to get us into the reward we don't deserve called heaven, if that's all you ever did, that's more than we could ever possibly deserve. That's more than we could ever possibly ask from you. But on top of that, you love us, you're for our joy, and you want to bless us. So thank you for passages like this that teach us how to be blessed. I pray we would take this seriously and let it change and mold our lives and the way we live and the way we think. I pray this in Jesus' name. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.